0: Right, guys. Oh, there we go. This is me. Yeah. <laughs> I was hearing echoes. I was like, oh, it's on. I don't care. <laughs> um, so last week we finished the book of Joshua, which was really cool. Pastor Sam finished that off. Uh, and pretty much the message of that was Joshua's the end of his life. And he's saying, hey, listen, like, are you all in for God or are you just going to Settle for the idols, and if you are, at least make that clear, right? So I want you to remember that theme of like being all in for God, all in for Jesus. As we move into our next series, we're going to be moving into a four-week series leading up to Christmas Eve. Um, the series is going to be called "A Child" or uh, "Unto Us a Child is Born," and the goal of this series that Pastor Sam and I wanted is the the scripture that we're going to read, Isaiah 9:6. We We use it all the time during Christmas time. If you're a Christian, most of us are familiar with it. We use it all the time and it's a powerful passage, but we want to not only just know it, but we want to be very like, we want it to actually be deep in us. Like we don't want to just have it be a poster thing or on a shirt or on a mug and only for the Christmas season. But there is huge implications in this passage for your life. And so we want to spend some time and unpack four names that is given to Jesus as the Messiah. And so that is what we, were gonna, we are going to be doing today. And if you're an unbeliever, if you're a skeptic or if you're doubting Christianity or whatever, if you're here with us or online, we're excited that you're here because you might be thinking, what is the big deal with Christmas? Why are we all crazy about it? Like, what is, what is this? Like, I don't understand like all these things. It's huge, right? Because the incarnation, God in the flesh coming as Jesus to do the work of salvation is a huge thing. And so we're gonna unpack four names that kind of express that. But before we begin, uh, let me just pray because we we want God to speak. Lord, thank you for your grace. Jesus, we just want to know you. We want want to know you. Everyone here who's come to church today, they've, they've come to know you. We want to know you deeply. We don't want to just know about you, but we want to know you, Lord. And so I just pray that as we work through one of these names this morning, I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to see the implications of what it means for our life and how we see you as a person, not just an idea, not just a teacher, not just someone in the Bible, but as God. Lord, um, you've made your word clear to us, and so help us to understand it. Give us your Holy Spirit. Teach us, Father. And so we give this to you, and we ask all of this in your mighty name. Amen. So before I... uh... Before we read the passage, um, I want to start with this. When we know a person by name, it adds huge significance to the relationship, right? Like, if I came up to Rick and I said, hey, guy, (laughs) you would literally be offended at me. (laughs) Like, Like, we don't address each other that way. Maybe people do, but that's rude, right? But if I came up to you and I was like, Rick, how are you? Or Laura, how are you doing? like there's significance to that, right? It adds significance to that relationship. Names have huge value. We're given a personal name and oftentimes we use it to distinguish each other. Like we don't wanna all be named John because then we're like, oh my gosh, like which one, you know? But, but it distinguishes, but it also, it's very, in, in some sense, it's, it defines who you are, right? It's your personal name. And um, when we look in the Bible, the Bible places huge emphasis on names. It's a huge thing in the Bible and it doesn't approach it from an American 21st century modern standpoint. Right? So like for us, we name our children things cause they're cool or we, you know, maybe a name is passed down generationally. Like, like Jordan and I have been, my wife have been looking at like the Royals, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, there's like Edward the 80th. Like there's so many like Edwards right but but there's like there's there's more meaning in a name in jewish culture in jewish culture like a name really defines someone and like one rabbi uh named benjamin black even goes so far let me preface with this i don't necessarily agree with this totally but i'm i'm saying it to give you an idea of how the jewish culture sees the significance of names he says that names Um, He goes so far to say that names are, to some extent, prophetic, and give us glimpses into someone's soul. I'm like, I I mean, I don't know, but like, in the Jewish culture, that is how they see names. And we have biblical examples of this. I'm just going to give us a few. We see in the Bible, uh, Abram is renamed to Abraham, and his wife Sarah is renamed to Sarah from Sarai in Genesis 17. Why does God do this? To communicate what he was gonna do through them. You are gonna be the mother and the father of many nations. He renames them and this meaning is attached to their name. They were promised a son, right? 90 years old, promised a son. What do they do? They laugh at God, quite literally to his face. And God is like, I'm gonna do this. They have a son and what do they name him? Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. Why do they name him Laughter? Because they they laughed at God, like, and he did it. And it was like a reminder of like, wow, God, like, he really showed up and and came through with his promise. And that happened in Genesis 21. And even in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is having a conversation with one of his disciples in Matthew 16, and he renames him from Simon to Cephas, which means rock. And, and the conversation is Peter is declaring him as the Messiah. And so Jesus renames him to, sol- to communicate the solidity of his faith. Like, you believe that I am the Messiah. You're going to be Cephas on this rock. I will build my church, right? That verse. And so we see that like there are, there's huge implications for a person's name in the Bible. It means a lot. There's a lot of significance. And you might be wondering, why are we talking about names, right? Well, we're gonna be reading a passage and we're gonna be going through the next four weeks four names that are given to Jesus. And they're not just any old names. There's huge implications and significance to these names that are given to Jesus as the Messiah. And so when we read them, I don't want us to read it from an American perspective or whatever culture you come from. I want, I want us to read it from a Jewish perspective like a jewish, a jewish mind reading these things about oh my gosh like i've been waiting for the messiah and this is this is what he's going to be like this is how i'm going to identify him and so that is what we're going to do so if you have your bible i hope you do if you don't it'll be on the screens we're going to be reading isaiah 9 and we are going to start in verse 1. we're going to read all the way down to verse 7. Uh, just to get some of the context here. <clears throat> I'm going to do what the preacher did at the uh, youth retreat. If you are there, say amen. <laughs> I'm assuming you're there. Okay. Uh, so starting in verse 1, this is what he says. Nevertheless, there will no more be gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors who rejoice when dividing the plunder. For in the day in Midian's defeat, you shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment was destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And here's the popular verse, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called... Now, again, we read this verse in Christmas time, right? How many of us have read the book of Isaiah? Raise your hand, right? If you didn't, I encourage you to. It's a, it's a great book, it's a big book, it's 66 chapters, but it's a really good book. It gives some huge context to this passage, so I'm gonna kinda lightly sprinkle a brief context so we understand what's going on here. Isaiah was a prophet 800 years before Jesus was even born. 800 years he was a prophet in the land of Israel, and a prophet was someone who proclaimed uh, God's word for the people. Oftentimes they would proclaim judgment um, because of people's sins, bringing on certain things, and so they would warn the people, repent, repent. But then other times they would speak God's word of restoration and say, hey listen, you've sinned, there's judgment coming, but guess what? There's a remnant and God is going to restore them. And God is going to work and God is going to, there's this restoration that God is going to do. And that's what he's doing. Isaiah is giving a restorative prophecy, a messianic prophecy in the midst of huge turmoil. The Assyrian empire is entering into Israel and invading them. And God is allowing it because of all the sin that is going on in the land. And so Isaiah, God gives Isaiah this message of this coming promised Messiah who's going to redeem Israel. He's gonna bring salvation to the nations. He's gonna fulfill every prophecy made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everyone else, right? This was Isaiah's ministry. And in this passage, this passage today is one of three messianic prophecies in chapters seven to 11. In chapter seven, we read of the Messiah's birth. We know that verse, right? Be born a virgin, right? That verse is talking of the Messiah's birth. This one is talking of the Messiah's nature, his character, what he will be like, who he will be. And then in, verse, or in chapter 11, we read of the Messiah's reign as a king, how he's actually going to restore Israel. He's gonna be the one who rules on David's throne forever. And we read that in chapter 11. And so the names given to the Messiah child, the one who will be born in the manger, Right, Whom we know is Jesus according to the Gospels, speak heavily to Jesus' character and nature. And we have to remember that as we dive and unpack this uh, name that we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be unpacking the name Everlasting Father. Sam was supposed to be up here preaching today. He was going to unpack Prince of Peace. He will do that next week. But we're going to be unpacking Everlasting Father. And so why is it important for us to understand Jesus as Everlasting Father? because Jesus is the Messiah, so this is who Isaiah is talking about. Why is it important that we understand him as an everlasting father? Because I thought Jesus was the son of God, the son of God. How then is he also, according to Isaiah, the everlasting father? This seems weird, like how do I, how do I handle this? For us to wrap our minds around this, we need to fast forward 800 years to the controversy that was Jesus's mystery. <laughs> Like Jesus, he took the philosophies of his culture and flipped them upside down and was just totally rocking everything. I mean, because at that time, Judaism and what was going on, like the law that God gave his people had become man-made tradition. And and the religious leaders were tacking on and, and putting burden on the people by tacking on human tradition on top of the already 613 laws that God commanded people. And so it was impossible. It was like, this is, this is oppressive. And so Jesus would come along with his this 12 disciples, and they would just, he would do things, right? He would eat on the Sabbath, and he would heal on the Sabbath, and he would do all these things, and the religious leaders of the time would lose their mind. They would be like, oh my gosh, he's like, this guy is a blasphemer, right? One of the things that got him into the most trouble, if you read the Gospels, was when Jesus would say things like, I and the Father are one. One. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? He says this in John chapter 10 and John 14. These these are claims that Jesus is making in front of the Jewish religious leaders who were looking for their Messiah. And Jesus would say something like this, and they would be like, we are going to stone you right now because you are blaspheming. We read over that and we're like, oh my gosh, that's really cool. For them, this was a huge deal. Because in their law, it says, if you are blaspheming God, you are to be stoned. And so they charged him with that. And that is exactly what they charged him with and put him on the cross with. So this was scandalous in Jesus's day to say, I am one with the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? In Colossians 1, Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the Father, the physical representation of the Father. So Jesus was just communicating a truth about his nature that the people were just missing. They couldn't connect and reconcile this. Jesus is one with the Father, which means in his essence, he is God. This is why we say like God was incarnate in Jesus, like God came incarnate as Jesus. That's why we say that. Because Him and the Father are one, this doctrine of the Trinity. God coming as human flesh. And so at the same time that Jesus is one with the Father, Jesus is also distinct from the Father. Jesus is the Son, God the Son. And then there's God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And this is a, this is a historical biblical truth about God and who he is. So Isaiah is not saying that Jesus and God the Father are one as Everlasting Father in the sense that they are one person, like the same person, but he's saying that they are the same essence. Your Messiah is going to be God and he's going to come and restore you. Like God is gonna come and he's gonna do it himself. But the point remains, God is heavenly in his nature or uh, fatherly in his, I mean, he's heavenly in his nature too, but he's fatherly in his nature. And Jesus perfectly exemplifies this. He did it every time he healed someone or wept with someone. He, He did it every time he had compassion on a sinner or a tax collector and called them to be a disciple. Or when he gave the parable of the lost son. He said, I will leave 99 sheep to go after the lost one. That's a fatherly heart. Have you ever asked yourself or wondered why God chooses to reveal himself as a father? I would say it all the time, I mean, when I pray, I, I don't even realize that I'm addressing God as father because it's just become so natural for me to address him that way, which is good. But why does God choose to reveal himself as father? Because he doesn't have to, but he does because let's be honest, it's hard for us to comprehend this, right? When we think of God, right, the first thing that comes to your mind isn't always Father. Or if you are a non-Christian, or if you are a non-Christian, when you think of God, Father is not the first thing that comes to your mind. Maybe judge or king or warrior, right? Something powerful, someone who is all knowing, who knows everything, that's what comes to mind. But the Bible highlights this nature of God God is fatherly in his nature. And I think for most of us, the struggle in understanding this concept of God being a father, being a heavenly father, is because of our limited understanding of fathers, right? Like, if you're a father here, or I mean, we've all had a father at some point, they were probably imperfect, right? Why? Because we're human. We're imperfect humans. And so of all the fathers who are, have a relationship with their children, there was actually a really um, sad statistic that I read and I was debating if I should say it, but there are 24.7 million children who do not have a consistent relationship with their father. That's in America. Like that's a lot of children without a consistent relationship with their dad. And so there's a lot of people in our world who have a very limited understanding of what, it, what a father means, what it means for someone to be fatherly to them. And of all the fathers that are consistent, even the good and godly ones, we mess up. We have to apologize to our kids. We have to, you know what I mean? Like, and that's a good thing, and that's, that's a holy thing, but when it comes to understanding God as a perfect father, It doesn't sometimes make sense to us. How can God be perfect in his fatherly nature? An example of this would be like, I got saved, right, at 21, and my dad wasn't in my life too much. I saw him on the weekends. But I, when I became a Christian, I had this tendency to continue to ask for forgiveness like a million times for like, if I knew I sinned. Like, like, I don't know, I'll do something And I'll be like, okay, God, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. And then like five minutes later, I'm like, Lord, forgive me. And then one day later, I'm like, forgive me. And then two years later, I'm like, God, please forgive me for what I did two years ago. And then five years later, I'm like, God, I can't believe I did that, please forgive me. Why do I do that? What is that? It's because I believe that God is not fatherly in the sense that like he's going to actually forgive me when he says that he would. I wanna read a verse in Hosea chapter 11. It's not gonna be on the screens because I want you to just listen to the words. I want you to listen to how God is communicating to his people. The context of Isaiah is that God's God's people has left him. Like they've, they've abandoned God and went after other gods. And the book of Hosea is portraying this this picture of God buying back his people and and bringing them back into relationship with him, despite their wanderings and despite their rebellions. And this is how God speaks to his people. In verse 1, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, which were other gods, and they burned incense to images. But it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. Verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Those are very specific words that God is using when he's communicating to his people. He didn't have to talk like that, but he's giving very clear metaphors of a parent with a child to communicate his heart for his people. He loves his people, but he loves them with a fatherly heart. And he does this because he wants us to know how deeply his love is for us, how deep his love is for us. He wants us to understand the tenderness of his heart. God is a holy God. He's he's a wrathful God. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of holiness, but he's also a tender God. He's also a God of love. He's also a God of grace. And he wants us to be reminded that we were made for him. This is the type of relationship that we were made for with God. That he would be tenderly fatherly to us. And so Isaiah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is encouraging us that the person of Jesus, the the Messiah, would reveal this as he reveals that he is God and that he is the Messiah. He would reveal this aspect of God, that God is your Father. He encourages his disciples to pray and address God as Father. And he encourages us to address God as Father because Jesus would reveal this characteristic about God. So now I want to shift and emphasize the second aspect of this word Everlasting Father, this name that is given to Jesus. So we talked about God being a father. We talked about that fatherly nature that God would, Jesus would exemplify. But I want to talk about how Jesus is an Everlasting Father, the fact that God is everlasting. Because in our culture, us today, and you might not know this about yourself, but we love temporary things, right? So when you're in a restaurant and you're sitting for your food, and you order and you're really excited and you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm excited for the food, like, okay, right? But after like 30 minutes, how, what are you starting to feel? 40 minutes, 50 minutes, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm leaving a bad review at this place. They didn't get it to me on time because you love it to be temporary. You don't wanna wait a long time, right? You're on the phone with customer service. Come on, (laughs) we know this. And they're like, I'm gonna put you on a temporary hold. I'm like, okay, thinking it's gonna be like one minute. It's like five hours, I'm waiting. My phone is in the kitchen and I'm doing other stuff and I'm still hearing that music going on. What am I feeling? I'm mad at the person. Why? Because it wasn't a temporary hold, they lied to me because I like temporary things. We are like this, and we don't even realize it. We love temporary things. And so when we think of God, we often think that he will be temporary in his promises or in how he deals with us. Again, like I'll talk about myself again with with, uh, constantly asking forgiveness for the same thing. Again, why am I doing that? Because I think that God is only going to temporarily forgive me. I don't believe in my mind. I can't connect that God is, when God says like, he's not gonna think of the sin anymore because it's covered by the blood of Jesus. And when I repent and I ask for forgiveness, it's washed clean. I don't believe it because I believe in temporary things. And so the idea of God being an everlasting God is hard for me to grasp. It's hard for us to grasp. The word, the Hebrew word used here for everlasting father is a word that means to perpetually continue to be forever. Perpetually continue to be forever. Which means that God is fatherly and tender in his heart forever. It is how he deals with us forever. And he doesn't miss a beat because why? He's perfect. He doesn't never have to ask for forgiveness. He never has to say sorry. He never screws up. He never does it wrong. He does it perfectly. And this is clear. God, in other words, doesn't change. He does not change, and he will not change. And this is clear in Scripture. In James 1:16 and 17, this is what it says. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He he doesn't change. That's New Testament. Old Testament, Numbers 23, 19, this is what it says. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. God, does God speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? Like these scriptures are highlighting the fact that when God says something, he's gonna do it. If he promises something, he's going to do it. God doesn't change his mind in how he thinks of you when you are in Christ. He doesn't like, you screw up one day and he's like, oh, well, guess that blood doesn't apply today. No, like like God is perpetually continuing to be a faithful God. And this is important for us. And I, and I want to emphasize this heavily because there's a, there is a philosophy in our culture that I think is dangerous. And it is the whole philosophy of like, believe in yourself, trust yourself, make your own destiny, do your own thing, believe your own truth, do this your way, make your life. You are the success of this idea of you being the center of your eternity is dangerous. It's absolutely dangerous. Why? Because you're going to change. You're not going to think the same way right now, one year from now, you're going to grow youth. You think that you're really cool right now, but 20 years down the road, you're going to look back and be like, what was I doing? That was weird. I do that all the time. Right? So we change and we grow and it's inevitable because we're human and it's not bad that we change, but you can't base your whole eternity, On you. You need, and I need, a God who is going to never change despite my mistakes and despite my failures and despite my inability to live out all that he commands me to do perfectly. I need a God who's not going to change his mind about me because of Jesus. A.W. Pink, who was a Bible scholar in the early 20th century, He puts it this way. He wrote a book called The Attributes of God, where he's just going through all these things that God is. And he wrote a chapter about God's unchangeableness, his immutability. This is what he says. He says, however unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if he was controlled by caprice, who could confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name, he is ever the same. His purpose is fixed, his will is stable, and his word is sure. This is something true of God that Jesus would make sure we knew when he came as the Messiah. This is exactly what Isaiah is communicating through his prophetic message in Isaiah 9. Jesus promised he would be the single most eternally satisfying person for you and me. Nothing else will be as satisfying as Jesus. And he would restore your relationship to your heavenly father. How? Because he was God in the flesh, restoring man and woman to their heavenly father in the relationship that God had created them for. And so for us, again, as we are trying to not just have this be a poster verse, a poster passage, but actually look at it and what it means for our life and the implication it, implications it has for our life. The question is, what are we gonna do with Jesus? Because that's, that's exactly what this passage is talking about. Messiah is gonna come and he's going to do all these things and he's going to be wonderful counselor and everlasting father and mighty God. Okay, but but why is God communicating that? Again, Joshua 24, are you going to be all in for Jesus, or are you going to settle for the idols of the land, the idols of social media, the idols of everything else that our world elevates as God's? Are you going to settle for that, or are you going to make the decision to follow Jesus and give him everything? And so, I want to be honest. When making... when when writing a sermon like this, like this is what I was thinking in my office, like I was writing it and I'm like, okay, this is all really great truths, but I was scared and fearful in myself for this reason, that I would stand up here and get us to look at these things and then I would walk away and I would go home and I would say, oh, that was a nice, that was a good sermon, that was nice, right? that you would continue to go through your week, you would walk away and then you would just say, good sermon or decent sermon. Nice, I learned something. I learned some facts about Jesus. And, and I fear that like for me, like I feel like I, w- I could stand up here and, and say all these beautiful truths about the word and that it would never connect to my heart. It would be all up in here and it would never go to my heart and travel to my heart and Lead to any type of transformation in my life. And so I'm fearful of that for me and for you. And so I pray and I'm like, God, please, like, don't let this just stay in my mind. I don't need it to be in my mind. I need it to be in my heart. I need a a transformed life. That's what God wants. And that's the temptation. The temptation. And I'll just be really honest, the enemy doesn't care that you're at church right now. He cares more if you take the truths of the word and you actually apply it to your life. There's a lot of people in church, a lot of people in church. But he doesn't want you to take what you hear and actually live it out and actually let it orient your entire life. Not just a facet, not just a part, but your entire life. And so, I'm gonna repeat a parable that Jesus, uh, I'm gonna paraphrase it, Jesus gives in Matthew 13. He tells a parable about the kingdom of God. And he says, hey, the kingdom of God is like a treasure that a man finds in a field. Right? He opens up the treasure and he's like, wow. He goes and he sells everything that he has so that he could buy the field so that he could have the treasure. Jesus's point is, The kingdom is this treasure that you have to sell everything for. Not physically, you know, he's not saying like, go and sell all of your things right now. I mean, maybe if you're called to be a missionary, you might actually literally have to do that and leave all that you know and go to a land that you don't know, it's very real. But the principle is giving up everything that you think and how you would orient your own life, giving it all up for Jesus. Be like, you know what, Jesus is worth it. His kingdom is worth it his will for my life is worth me giving up what I want for my life and what I want to do right now and what I want you know Jesus is worth it and so the the thing we have to understand about this verse with these names is it's it's a wonderful verse for Christmas but it's also a crossroads are we going to look at this verse and say really nice I like that about Jesus Or are we going to look at it and be like, you know what, this is demanding I do something with Jesus. Like, if this is true about who Jesus is, if he's mighty God, everlasting father, if that's true about who he is, then I, that means I have to do something with Jesus. Because in the end, it's not going to matter what we think about Jesus or what we feel about Jesus, or even what we believe about Jesus. What's going to matter is what we actually did with him. Did we accept him as our treasure and our only satisfaction of, like, my eternity? Like, I want to give everything to Jesus. That's what's going to matter in the end. And so that's the question I'm going to leave us with as we move into our week, right? I'm going to do what Sam does all the time, give homework, right? This is great. But I want us to think about that question. These are beautiful truths, everlasting father. My goodness, the fact that God could be a father and a perfect one at that to me, and that he would be that way forever, even as I enter into heaven and I enter into eternity with him. But what am I going to, am I gonna take that and walk with him? Am I gonna live my life for Jesus? And so this week, let's all read Isaiah 9, this whole, I mean, the whole chapter. Get it all in ourselves. Isaiah 7, which was the other passage about the the birth of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah. And then let's read Matthew 1, because what? That is the end, that's the entrance of Jesus coming into the world. And then John 10, he's the good shepherd. And then let's also, this is something I loved to do and I still like to do is journal, right? Journal a prayer after reading these verses of how it's impacted you this week. How has these, like, how did this impact my life for God upon reading these things? What did I learn? What am I struggling with? What questions do I have? Be as honest as you, as you can in your, in your journaled prayer. And then if you need help with prayer, maybe a simple prayer like, Lord, help me to know you as my everlasting father, that I may have confidence in who you claim to be and how you see me. And then connect with someone in church from a different household and start a discussion about these passages, right? It's great to talk with other believers about these things that we're learning in Scripture. So I encourage you, reach out to someone. Be like, hey, this is, this is weird. What do you think about this? Or... Hey, this is really encouraging. I wanna encourage you with this. So let me pray and uh, we'll close our service with some more worship. Lord, thank you that you are an everlasting father. God, we won't even be able to truly understand what that means until we actually are with you. But for now, Holy Spirit, help us to understand a little more deeply as what that means as it relates to you. God, thank you that this is how you have revealed yourself to be in Jesus, in the Messiah, in the one who would come and accomplish the work of salvation. The whole reason that we celebrate at Christmas time is because of Jesus the Messiah. He's come into the world. It's the whole reason for Advent, waiting and preparation, like we talked about earlier, preparing the way for Jesus. You know, we want our hearts to recognize that Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are this everlasting father proclaimed here in Isaiah 9. And that means that my whole life has to change. You don't want me to stay the same. You want me to be like your son, Jesus. You want to mold me and remove the things and the idols in my heart. You want to destroy them. You want to move them. And you want to plant your righteousness in me. You want to cover me in robes of righteousness. And you do in Christ. So Lord, I pray that as we go out into our weeks, help this not to just be another message that we heard at church. I pray God that this this would impact our soul, that we would go home and we would sit down with our Bibles and we would contemplate these things and we would, we would study and we would pray and we would seek to know you more as an everlasting Father and what that means for us and for our families, for the people in my neighborhood who don't know you and the family members who don't know you. So thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your truth.